Hey everybody, Payments Professor here and welcome to the Payments Podium. Today we have got another special guest. It is Simon Taylor. He is the head of content and strategy. Some of you out there that you know keep up with what's happening on the real influencers in electronic payments in the industry know Simon from FinTech Brain Food. If you're not following that blog, you should be. There's some great content coming out on a very regular basis. Uh, the professor's following him and loving what's coming out there. Simon, I want to welcome you to the Payments Podium today, though. Thank you for having me. It feels absolutely amazing to be here. I've heard so many wonderful things. There are literally people taking photos with excitement that I've uh, joined it. It feels like Sardine has made it when we've joined the Payments Professor. So thanks for having me. Oh, no, no. I feel like the professor's made it having Sardine and having you mm -hmm. on here today. And, and I got to tell you, I don't know. Um, uh, I, one of the things I like to start the podcast off with is always asking people, how did you get started in electronic payments? Because I know that's a great question to ask people and everybody's come from different degrees, different angles, and it's fun to hear that answer because I've yet to have anybody go, I was sitting in kindergarten, I watched a transaction get processed and said, I've got to do that. So Simon, how did you get started in this world of electronic payments? I needed a job. I needed a job, my friend. Uh, <laughs> it's as simple as that. I think that the longer version of it, it was actually, I'd, I'd spent eight years in the telco sector. I always wanted to work in software. And I'd done that for eight years. But then uh, in 2007, I was actually diagnosed with testicular cancer. And uh, I was very, very lucky. I got um, surgery. I'm just taken care of. I'm super healthy. I'm super grateful for everybody that was involved in my health care. But that made me think, you know, what do I want to do with my life? And of course, the answer was, I want to be an entrepreneur. And I built a couple of businesses and they did okay. They were lifestyle businesses, but they weren't paying the bills. So I needed to get myself a job. And I took some of the experience I had on my resume and put it in a few places, put it with some recruiters, and they landed me in this company called Tesis. And some of you will know Tesis is the issuer processor behind Capital One and Bank of America and so on. Uh, but I didn't know it from Adam at that point. It could have been anything. And I was actually working in the data center in the United Kingdom. So I'm now project managing deep infrastructure, deep in the middle of payments with zero context for what payments are. Um, and I'd actually joined a team full of people um, that was a bunch of ex-army dudes who figured out that this kid, this kid in his early 20s has talked his way into this job and knows nothing about payments. And they were like hazing me uh, to try and get me to admit it. But instead of having the EQ to realize what was going on, I would go hide in the bathroom and squirrel Twitter on my Blackberry and read about technology. And that's where I discovered this hashtag called FinTech. And that's where I started meeting folks like Ron Shevlin, folks like Jim Maroos, who became sort of almost um, my OGs and brought me into this world of, of fintech. So um, Tesis has a lot to answer for. Those army dudes did me a real service. Um, so shout out to you guys. Uh, Gareth Liptrot, you're a legend. And uh, yeah, that, that began the journey through cards. Then uh, after having done that for a few years, Barclays um, led uh, a lot of work on our um, separate implementation and some of our domestic payments around mobile payments. So I was kind of project managing what we were doing with mobile and integrating that with our existing payment systems. And then a bunch of stuff from there, consultancies, and now it's starting. Wow, that is one heck of a resume right there. But you know what I loved? And the reason I asked that question to a lot of people too is, 
because I talk to so many people and it's like, hey, how did you even get in here? Uh, and I hear some people say the same thing and I'm the same way. I needed a job at the time, but people get in here and just like you mentioned too, they suddenly are learning this language, hearing this jargon, all this talk and they're like, what am I doing? I mean, I was ready to cry my first week, you know, working on electronic payments. And this was pre-Twitter because I'm a little older than you are. So to hear that you were on Twitter, you were doing the research, that's great. Um, today, though, we are going to have some fun because we're going to talk about faster payments fraud. And, you know, the, uh, people listening out there, Simon's actually in the UK and he's going to be giving us some of the perspectives of what's happening already in the UK. Here in the US, we are, you know, in our infancy when it comes to faster payments and really the instant and the real time payments. And one of the biggest concerns, one of the number one things I hear from people is faster payments is going to equal faster fraud. So first of all, I know my view on this and what I tell people. So when I ask you, does faster payments equal faster fraud? What do you say? I would say that um, I'm going to try and take credit for that phrase <laughs> because I've been saying it for a, in, at least a half decade. Um, we um, and, it, and it may have been somebody I worked with back at Barclays. It may have been somebody else. But the, the equals thing um, is, is, is driven by data. Like we've seen it. This has been live in the United Kingdom since 2005. And look, we should say that faster payments, instant payments are phenomenal. There was a report done uh, by one of the lobbying organizations in the UK that um, looked at uh, the contribution to GDP of faster payments since 2005 was around about 2%. Which is phenomenal. That's a really good thing for any nation to have. You know, like you see more commerce, you see more transactions, um, especially in the consumer world. So we don't have the wallet wars of you know Zelle versus Cash App versus Venmo versus TCH versus ACH versus. We don't have that issue because everybody just supports one thing. The flip side of that is. It's with any sort of push payment types, the consumer protections just aren't there like they are in the cards world. And scammers and fraudsters realize this. So if they can socially engineer you, if they can convince you that you should move your money, then it's gone. So faster payments equals faster fraud because they can do this two or three times. Not only can they move the money instantly once, they can move it again and again and again and again. So following the money as a as a investigator becomes incredibly hard because I can see where it left my customer's account and where it went to, but they it, it's it, it's gone so fast at that point you don't know where it might end up. So we've seen massive. It, it's it's the biggest issue in fraud and compliance in the UK right now. Um, the regulators are uh, pushing hard for solutions. It's huge. Well, you, you know, what's funny is you when I when I say that it's almost like I set you up in, in some ways, because I tell people and some of my listeners are out there going, oh, my gosh, he's going to he's going to do it and I'm going to do it. I don't agree. I don't mm -hmm. think that faster payments equals faster fraud. I agree that there's a lot of fraud happening in faster payments. But the way I look at it is fraud happens before the payment. The fraud is, you know, like the person getting tricked into actually sending it. The fraud um, then is decided by the payment channel that is the available and easiest one to use. Because the reality is in the U.S., even though, granted, we don't have the faster push yet that much, we do have Zelle, which gets a lot of headlines in fraud. And we do have RTP from the clearinghouse, which doesn't really have that big of a problem with fraud that I'm aware of. 
we have more check fraud than we do anything else. And a lot of that is because, in my opinion, the fraudsters know how to work that system. But I do believe and I am worried that when we start seeing more availability of things like FedNow, we will see a rise in fraud on that channel. But it's not the channel that's the fraud. It's the fraudsters tricking people, convincing people, people falling for phishing scams. And then the payment channel gets blamed when the fraud takes place because people are going to use the easiest, fastest method they can to get the money. Yeah, they're going to go for the low-hanging fruit. But interestingly, do you know what the number one uh, thing, uh, payment type that disappeared after the introduction of faster payments in the United Kingdom was? What? Checks. Really? It wasn't cash. It wasn't anything else. Checks have dwindled to almost nothing. They completely disappeared. Um, cards have continued to risen, so they've obviously played their role in it. But checks are gone. You you will almost find no physical checks in the United Kingdom whatsoever. It's weird to us that you still use them in the U.S. It's like some some kind of relic from a bygone era. And it's sweet and it's lovely, like everything in the U.S. is. But why do you have checks? So uh, that movement means, well, where are the fraudsters going to go? Where do they have that similar mechanism? Now, it's not the fault of the payment system that the fraudsters have recognized that this is something where they can socially engineer somebody, but it is, um, I think, incumbent upon any payment system to build a, a set of protections and governance rules around itself and better yet, and a way to have to use the data payload of ISO 20022 to ensure that we as financial institutions are able to help protect our customers. The best prevention, uh, the best cure is prevention. So we want to try and warn the customer before they move money to somebody. But the, the process of what happens afterwards needs forethought. We can't just deliver a payment system and go, there, you've got real time. Now you figure it out. Like we need to bake within that all of the things that could go wrong. Because that's the that's really the job of financial services. It's not moving money. Moving money is easy. I just send a message. But moving it safely, moving securely, moving it in a trusted way, that's much more difficult. Okay. Well, he, he, I, I do want to hit, though, on the fraud that's happening with, with your faster payments there. Because I know, um, if if I'm correct, and you, you, can, you can verify this for me, when you first launched faster payments in the UK, the fraud just took off. But then you got a little bit of a handle on it. However, it is still a problem. And I know uh, that there's been a lot of regulatory things that have happened, rules that have been put in place to be able to say, people, this is what you've got to do. And a lot of it is put on the financial institutions, both on the sending and the receiving side, that they're the ones that get held responsible for when the fraud happens. Is that correct? Is is that what is actually taking place? Because I know people here in the States are going, what are we going to do? Not yet. Um, so there's a voluntary code, but we're anticipating with the passing of the Financial Services uh, and uh, Financial Markets and Services Act, which is which is going to pass through Parliament in the next uh, next session. So probably in the next three months, that there will be a 50-50 split of liability for any scam 
that a consumer is subject to through any payment method, regardless of what it is. So if you are the sending institution and all the receiving institution, you've got to figure out how you 50-50 split that. Now, that could mean that you have one of the largest banks in the world and somebody who's just set up a small payments wallet having to do a 50-50 split through a massive fraud. And the large financial institution might be like, hey, silly little company, that's your fault. Um, but the silly little company might be like, no, it's actually the bank's fault and they don't have the lawyers to fight back. So there's an interesting power dynamic that could play out there. And um, that's number one. So there will be a 50-50 split, but that's not happened yet. The second thing that we do have and that could be enhanced is something called confirmation of payee. So before I go to make a payment and I go to enter the bank account numbers, I also must enter the beneficiary name into that payment instruction. And then there's a service that confirms that the account number matches the name of the person I'm intending to pay. So I must be pushing it to a real account where the name matches. In other words, I must know the name of the person I'm sending it to, uh, which is something that, again, uh, one of the neobanks, in fact, a, a digital challenger bank in the UK initially introduced as, uh, as a feature uh, bank called Monzo that was then adopted and, and pushed out to, to some of the other major banks. And we expect to see that um, start to continue. We're also seeing now uh, an effort by uh, some of the payments industry bodies to uh, create more data sharing and collaboration um, and indeed Europe just uh, the European Commission just published um, PSD3 uh, so that will pass uh, at some point next year or the year after there's a lot to change between now and then but they're going to require that all payments so that the pan-european level have confirmation of PE so that you match the name of the PE to the um, IBAN and that there is some level of consumer protections for disputes and refunds baked into all account-to-account -account payment types. So uh, if there's one thing that Europe is still a superpower on, it's regulation. Uh, GDPR and PSD2 kind of impacted everybody. Every web page you go to has cookie consent because of your friends in Europe. Uh, so uh, I suspect that might be a trend that you start to see uh, others, others follow once FedNow is introduced. Okay, there's a lot to unpack in there. I mean, first of all, the 50-50 split, I've seen, you know, some of the what's happening in that, uh, the potential for it. I mentioned it here at a conference this summer that I was speaking at, and the, the response was, well, 50% of the time, I'm going to love it. 50% of the time, I'm going to hate it because, you know, half the time I'm going to, I'm, I'm, I'm sharing the loss. And then the other half the time I'm sharing the loss, you know, because of which side did it actually happen on. But the confirmation of payee, you know, everything becomes a three-letter acronym. So is that going to be COP in our way of policing payments? Unfortunately, a lot of people already call it that. Um, and I'm not going to use that phrase because I don't want it to take off. Uh, <laughs> so confirmation oh. of pay does get incorrectly labeled, yes. <laughs> well, okay, another one too, because uh, you, you dropped a couple other three-letter acronyms. That's why I had to call it COP there too is when you mentioned PSD3 coming and you said matching an IBAN. And I was recently at a more international type meeting 
And IBAN got mentioned by, you know, some people in Europe. And then some of my American counterparts are like, well, what exactly is that? And these are people with a lot of experience in electronic payments because IBAN is not something that we see so much in the U.S. by especially our regular consumers. So can you mention a little bit more about what IBAN is and why with confirmation of payee, combining those two together, it becomes a more powerful tool in being able to at least reduce and detect some fraud. So IBAN is like the account number to rule them all. Um, it, so you have an account number and a, and a routing number, or as you would call it, a routing number. Um, and those two combined have lots of similar equivalents in lots of international markets. So the UK has an account number and a sort code because we sort out things with codes. It was very British. Um, and lots of different markets have their equivalents. Now, there is an international standard called, I think it's the Interbank Account Number of the International Banking Account Number Standard, IBAN, based on ISO 20022, that has a single set of referencing. And that single account number is compatible with all local markets and can reference pretty much any bank account in most developed markets. Uh, so by using that standard at the European level uh, and adding to that the ability to check that that number matches the name, if I'm sending a, a payment from Italy to somebody in um, Denmark, then I could also confirm the payer name uh, matches that IBAN number. And you tend as well in SEPA, which is single European payments area, to use IBANs as the default way of, of referencing as well. So when I'm making pan-European payments, it tends to use that standard. Uh, so that's become a bit of a default Indeed, when we make international wires, we might be asked for the IBAN instead of the SWIFT um, wiring numbers. So uh, for us, it's, it's kind of a little more common to send money across borders than it is for, for most U.S. consumers. Um, and we might not always use MoneyGram for that. We have some options for, for sort of inter-regional trade. Uh, so IBANs are something you come across a little bit more often. Than, and, and why wouldn't you? They're just better. It's just better. I love that. And I, I, you know, and it, this, that's not even one of the things I planned for us to talk about, but I'm glad that it came up because if, if I'm right, then hearing by having IBAN, hearing by having the confirmation of payee, and as you know, some of the work I've seen you do with Sardine, and being able to stop and detect fraud, it basically takes more data, correct? If you've yeah, got I mean, the data, does that help stop the fraud? Soups, uh, the CEO of Sardine, has has a great saying. He's he's a data science guy by background, two a two PhDs in data science. The the guy intimidates me, and yet he's so nice. Um, so his uh, I think catchphrase is that all fraud problems are data science problems. So if I can get more data and I can protect it the right way, and I can ensure I've got the right regulatory frameworks then I have a better chance of stopping fraud before it even happens. It's like minority report stuff. So if I can see how somebody, like Kevin, you have a way of holding your device, you have a way of speaking, you have a way of walking, all of that sort of stuff. There are lots of things that make you and there's only one of you. Um, so if I can be really confident that you're the same Kevin you've always been, um, then I can be pretty sure that you're, you're you, you are who you say you are. A fraudster can steal your identity, they can steal documents, they can even make clone Kevins and you know make digital videos of Kevin. 
but they can't walk around into the real world and they can't go to the same coffee shop and they can't buy things as you. So there are a lot of things that will give us confidence that you are who you say you are and that you're behaving like you behave. If I build up that pattern over time, I need a lot of data to do that with. So Sardine does that by, you know, sort of having a small SDK that sits in mobile devices or uh, you know, JavaScript that sits in websites and helps us understand that Kevin's behaving like Kevin. Um, but we also look at, you know, uh, open banking data to see, you know, is this transaction really weird for Kevin? Has he suddenly just thought, YOLO, I'm going to go sailing around Latin America and that's not been his life goal. He always wanted to <laughs> go somewhere else. You know, like what, what, we look at these data points and we, we start to build a confidence that you're behaving consistently. Now, one of the biggest scams that we've seen is elderly targeting. Classic example, um, somebody calls up your parents and says, got this amazing thing. It's called cryptocurrency. It's going to take off. You need to get in now. Steadily builds a relationship with them. Sounds like a legitimate broker. Wins trust. Really, really works hard to get trust. Might take them weeks to do it. Then convinces them that they're going to set up an account at a cryptocurrency exchange and they're going to move some of their money into that cryptocurrency exchange. Now, what does the crypto exchange see? They see that this elderly person has gone to their website. They've signed up. They've used their real identity to create an account. They've used their real bank account with funds that they really own to move money into that account. And then what they've done is they've sent it somewhere else in the crypto world and it's gone. And then what they do, the old person calls the crypto exchange and goes, help, I was defrauded. And the crypto exchange goes, well, it looks to us like you create an account as you, you authorized a payment from your account to your account and you sent the money over there. Like it's very hard for them to really do anything as much as they may believe that person. They have no data, they have no evidence that fraud took, took place. So what we're looking for is all of those signals of like, this is a person of a certain age. They've also been on the phone a lot recently, so we can see active calls in session. And before the crypto exchange uh, lets any money come into that account, or uh, if money is pushed into that account, we can send them a signal saying, hey, this is, this is high risk. Um, and then they might decide, well, they're going to hold those funds. They're not going to let them move until they speak to the person. So that's how you can stop payments from going out before they happen. It's how you can stop fraud before it happens. It's minority report stuff. We're, we're, we're trying to get ahead of the payment. Okay. I got to say, you already mentioned that Europe is a superpower of regulation, which I totally agree. And then you bring up minority report into payments. There are some of my listeners out there, and I know from the comments that they leave and the emails that they'll send me that are going, no, 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 no. This is, you know, and some of them are conspiracy theorists. Let's just call it what it is. And they're afraid of having the instant payments. They're afraid that it's going to take over or take their cash away, which Folks, we got a podcast coming on how cash is here to stay. And they're they're concerned about having this level of monitoring, but to try and say it's a double-edged sword. The reality is the more monitoring ability you have, at least with your finances, I'm I'm comfortable with doing this, the more protected it actually can become. So if that is there, if the data is there, like you're saying, then it's available. Now, one thing I want to point out though, and you mentioned it earlier, because again, three-letter acronyms. And, and the one you have in the UK is APP. 
And APP, I mentioned it here, and I actually will jokingly say there's an app for fraud, or at least there's about to be as soon as we get faster payments. But could you just hit on how, in this case, the elderly training was APP, right? Yeah. I mean, at its basis. They authorized push payment fraud, right? So uh, classic Glenbrook stuff, pull versus push payments. I remember learning that in 2010 at a Glenbrook workshop. Shout out to those guys. Um, pull payments, you know, you've you've got your two days before the settlement happens. The instructions come from the merchant to pull the money from the bank account. So push payment is a consumer or um, entity initiating payment. I am going to make that instruction to push my money from your bank account to you. What do I do? I give my bank an instruction to push the money. The bank assumes I know what I'm doing when I'm pushing that money to you. So there's like, well, you, you push the money. And there's very little consumer protections around that type of payment. So one of the main consumer protections in, of course, the automated clearinghouse is the returns process and everything that happens around that. Um, and that's it's really helpful to have that two-day settlement delay to work and figure out what the heck happened. Um, and sometimes, you know, like that, that can be a good thing. We don't want everything to be instant, instant. Um, financial markets have circuit breakers because people can get into a panic. Things can go very wrong when, when everything goes instant. So we need circuit breakers. Definitely. There is an argument to be made for them. And authorized push payment fraud is exactly that. Um, in Europe, we also have another three letter acronym because why not? Um, SCA, strong customer authentication. So imagine if 3D Secure was good. Um, the idea is that I can very, very quickly, yes, I can use my one-time passwords. You know, I go to buy something online and I get an SMS and I enter that code into the e-commerce website. Well, that is also increasingly being used to uh, instruct any push payment. And also, it's quite common for that to use biometrics or a simple auth. So when I go to buy something online or when I go to make a, a passcode, I might have to enter my debit card pin into my mobile app or authenticate with biometrics or both. So I'm starting to see that the levels of like uh, user experience versus the standardization of being able to pay is another bit of friction that we can put in the way of the push payment. But uh, push payment fraud, APP fraud, is the scourge of faster payments. It's the scourge of any type of real-time payment system because, again, the weak point, the weak link in the chain is not the payment system, it's the human using it. And fraudsters are absolutely targeting the humans and they're targeting the most vulnerable. And that's why I jump out of bed every day and I'm excited to work at Sardine because we genuinely make a massive difference to people's lives um, by stopping fraud, by preventing it, by giving it people tools to make a difference. And you know, my dad lost nearly... I'm not going to say how much my dad lost. He lost a lot of money to this type of scam. And once it hits you personally, it hits different. And this is happening day in, day out. I'm there with you. I had the same thing actually happen with my mother under my nose, too. It was like, oh, my gosh, how did this actually take place? One more thing on APP I want to ask, too, is you, you even mentioned that the human, you know, can be the biggest problem right there. So education is real important. From what I understand that publicly, 
in the UK area, you have had education take place to help to get the general public more aware of APP scams. And like the, I heard about like the Take Five initiative to get people to stop and think about what they're doing. So can you confirm that for me that there's actually been, you know, the public getting involved, in the, maybe even the government on educating people on what to do? Oh yeah, they're they're absolutely trying, but it's like the stop smoking campaigns. Like there's always something going on um, along those lines. I, I would question how effective they've been, um, but there's definitely an, an, an attempt to do that. Um, but in in the world of marketing and media, how much is that really going on? There's another the thing. Uh, there is a responsibility on the financial institutions to be doing that education through uh, through what they have, and um, and to be trying to do it in the app. So. I, whenever I log into um, my uh, my main sort of uh, checking account, um, maybe once a month, uh, I get some little notification on the mobile app that says, uh, we'll never ask you to send money to certain addresses, we'll never ask you to da-da. be on the lookout for scams. They're always pushing these like uh, things that you have to read before you can get into the app. And they're about a sentence long. Um, you know, is somebody asking you to send money to them for for an emergency? Are you sure you know who it is? Like just these little reminders. And actually, I think that could be quite effective, which is like you don't get to get into this app until you read this thing. Like just stop for a second. Like I know you want to rush over there, but like put the put the scissors down and stop running. Um, we've got to we've got to take care of this. All right. My opinion, I love that you, how you said it until you read this thing. I think those pop-ups need to actually, you have to read it out loud and it register you read those words before it lets you go on. Because I've said before, you know, I've got a now 13 year old, my son, Liam, he's comes up in a lot of my discussions. He will click any button he can or has to, to get the screen to disappear that gets him to Roblox. Oh my God. Yes. Next. Yes. Next. I've, I've been there myself. It's like, get rid of the friction. This is in my way. Get rid of it. I, I had a friend who once said they would give their first child to get free Wi-Fi um, in, 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 a, in a foreign airport. Like it's just like, um, it's just when stuff's in your way, sometimes it can be really, really annoying. Um, but sometimes you have to be, you know, a little bit of friction can be a good thing. And there is a the right time and a place for it. And, and everybody thinks they're not the sucker. Um, but I know people who've spent 20 years in financial services that have been taken in by a romance scam. Like once somebody works their way into you, you know you can be a scam too. The the best thing you can do is not be low hanging fruit, but you should also recognize there's a good chance it will happen to you too. I, I got to agree. All right, Simon, this has been great discussion. I've got one, just one last question for you. And it is also something I love to do on The Payments Professor because a lot of people that are listening in are usually a lot new to payments or, you know, been around for a few years looking to go to that next level. And I'll get a lot of questions like, how did you get to be at the level you're at now? What, what can I do to be more like you? What can I do to become better at payments? So what advice would you give to somebody who's new in the area, looking to advance their career, wanting to, you know, really be able to excel? Like, for example, FinTech Brain Food. I hope I'm not taking your answer away here. I'm going to tell them, go follow that. That's a blog to go follow that help you. But what advice do you give to people to advance their career in this industry? Everybody learns differently. Um, so follow your curiosity. Um, for me, it was about sort of being around people. And I would sit with people and they'd explain stuff and I'd just ask questions. Um, it was about finding good excuses to get experience. 
Um, and always being aware of the fact that there's always more to learn. You're early in your career and there's everything to learn. But guess what? Everybody else is learning too. They just happen to have some context. And some of them are really willing to share that knowledge. So the wonderful thing about this industry is like everybody knows it's full of dense, stupid language. But there's a bunch of really passionate people. So find your people, find your tribe, build a network, get out to the conferences, get out to the events, meet some people and just be curious and stay curious. Uh, you know, some people like reading, some people like podcasts, find that thing that feels like home, like the Payments Professors podcast, there might be others out there and just enjoy it. Like find the thing that makes you want to get out of bed in the morning and, and keep doing it and move towards that. I know that sounds really abstract, but that's what worked for me. All right, Simon, thank you for being on The Payments Professor. You have shared so much with us. I love how you mentioned twice, get out of bed in the morning excited about what you're going to be doing. And I, I am there with you. I love this industry and what we're able to do. I agree with being curious. I love seeing too what Sardine is doing and how the fact is that if you've got the data, the data is what's going to be able to help you to be able to stop and at least prevent or put some friction really in place for when we have this faster payments fraud taking place. All of you out there listening though, if you wanna get a hold of Simon, FinTech Brain Food, that is where you need to go right there. I usually say, get in contact with me, I'll get you in contact with him, but just Google FinTech Brain Food, you'll find it real quickly. Now, if there is a topic out there that you would like to have on the payments podium, or if there's a speaker that you think should be on the payments podium, email me, Kevin, paymentsprofessor.com. I will do all I can to make sure that that speaker gets on or that topic gets addressed. Other than that, folks, it's been a great class having Simon here today, but this is where I get to say, class dismissed. <music>